Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish up the chapter from last week. Um, thankful again for Steve coming and leading for us this weekend. Would you show your appreciation to Steve one more time? Thank you, Steve. Leading. No, his parents are excited about him being here. Um, his sister would have loved to have been here and been a part of this, but she's downstairs with our kids uh, leading today, and we're thankful for the Moore family. We're thankful for that whole uh, crew as they have blessed our church. So we're in the midst of a series of messages that we're calling Arrows in the Hands of God, and we talked about that phrase um, a few weeks ago. It comes actually from a tweet from a guy named John Piper several years ago when there was a conference in Atlanta where they had filled the Georgia Dome and as he saw the picture, the fisheye camera that had all of them there, he just put that there, the picture and then arrows in the hands of God. And the idea behind it is that we are to be sent out as God's messengers in this world. A guy that was leading that conference at the time, a guy named Louis Giglio, and he drew this kind of picture to represent what that looks like based on the word of God, that we as the church will be launched out with Jesus as the point of what we're doing, the gospel as the message we're preaching, and the spirit of God, the fire that takes us where we're going. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been delving into the book of Acts to see this original moment when the church was launched literally into the world. We spent the first week really kind of focusing on the message and the mission of what God had for them. The fact that in Acts chapter 1-8, as he's getting ready to leave the earth, Jesus gives them the mission that they're to do, that they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even into the ends of the earth. And then last week we took at the power that comes. He was told them to go and wait for power to come, to wait for them to be empowered, and that when they are empowered, then they will go. And so they wait for the power to come, and as they wait for that, they pray and they seek, and then the Spirit of God comes and they proclaim what is happening in that place. They worship enthusiastically. They declare the wonders and the glory of God. And they share what God has done for them in their lives. Kind of as an end to this first part of this series that we're going to continue for the next few weeks, I want to find out what happens at the end of that. Now, I realize that I'm in a setting where most of you are people that have read Acts chapter 2 a couple of times in your life. We're actually reading through the book of Acts together as a church family and I posted a video last week answering some of your questions. Already got a couple of questions about this week. and want to continue to, to uh, encourage you to read. If we still have a few of the scripture notebooks out back, you can pick one of those up and read as we go. But we are on, uh, this is the schedule that we've been following. So the first week we read Acts 1 through 5, Acts 6 through 11, and Acts 12 through 16. And so some of you this week will be further along in Acts. And I told you, we're going to kind of be stuck here at the beginning for a moment to kind of just get our heads around what's happening. Or if you've got a question that you'd like ask in a Tuesday Facebook Live that I'll be doing, then I would invite you to send that to me in my email address, pastor at fbcgillisville.com. I gave that out last week, and I got four or five emails that had nothing to do with Acts, but they were good emails. And so if you're going to send a nasty email, my uh, email address is janetta at fbcgillisville.com. 
fbcgoodlesville.com. If you're sending an encouraged one, it's pastor at fbcgoodlesville.com. And so um, we got those in, and I'll, I'll answer them this week. But in Acts chapter 2, most of you have read it. You know the ending of this story, right? That Peter gets up, he preaches this message, and he calls for a response, and people respond. And so you have this moment where it's all kind of coming full circle. Jesus gave them a mission. They desperately waited on the Spirit of God to come. The Spirit empowers them. They speak the message that God has given to them, and people responded. And so what I want to do today is just look at the attitude and the actions of a church of a group of people, of a movement that is being used by God like arrows to penetrate the darkness and the world in which we live. I want to start a little bit back in where we were last week, which is Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. And there it says this. When they heard this, When they heard the message of Peter, when they recognized what he had said, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. When I look at this passage of Scripture, there's one particular phrase in that first verse that we read that sticks out to me each time I read it, and it made me think about what exactly happened in this moment. And it is simply in verse 37, it says, When they heard this message, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced. We know what that feeling is like. Sometimes it's that sinking feeling or that overwhelming feeling, that moment that you can't explain, that, that something deep down in you realizes there's something wrong or something needs to change or that you are responsible for doing something. And so the question that I ask is, what was it about what Peter said that pierced them to the heart? Another translation of that says that cut them to the heart. I think there are a couple of things in this passage that give hints to that, that are in the speech of Peter and that we know from Scripture. And the first thing is they realized they were wrong about Jesus, about life, about what it meant to follow God. They realized in that moment that everything upon which they had built their life was no longer valid. In their day, there were all kinds of theories about who Jesus was, what his job was, what his mission was. They thought he was a prophet, some. Some thought he was an overcomer that was going to throw off the shackles of the oppressive regime that was holding them down from Rome. Some thought of him as a great rabbi or priest. And yet what we know from Scripture is whatever their thoughts were about who Jesus is, he did not conform to their thoughts. He forgave sins, which was only something God could do. He allowed them to worship him. 
He was more than what they expected and different than what they wanted. And yet we understand from Scripture that as Peter preaches this message again and again, they are reminded that they were wrong about Jesus. He basically says to them that they were wrong about it. In fact, he says it in chapter 2, verse 36, just a couple of, just the verse before this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He says, you thought he was a great teacher, you thought he was a good man for a while, and then you turned on him at the end and you crucified him. He was crucified on the cross, and that man, God, has validated who he is. He has overruled your expectations and made him both Lord and Messiah. Those are two important terms. Lord meant absolutely ruler over all. It was a term that was given to the Lord God Almighty. And so when they heard that he was the Lord, they were declaring that he is on par with God. And not only that, he is the Messiah, the promised one who had come to save people from their sins and to set all things right with God. It says, this Jesus that you killed, God has validated by the resurrection and is Lord God, Messiah. And in that moment, many of them, as the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles and their teaching, realized they were wrong. You ever been wrong? Maybe. Your spouse ever been wrong? Yeah, there's a little more definitive there, right? At some point in our lives, we all have to come to the understanding that no matter how smart we think we are, there are things about which we are wrong. And those are some of the hardest words to say in the English language. Right along with I'm sorry, sometimes even more difficult is I was wrong. We'll try to massage that. I was mistaken. I didn't have all the facts. Um, In retrospect, I could have made a different decision or thought process. Instead of just simply I was wrong. But when you're talking about the most important matters of life, like who Jesus is, When we realize that we have constructed Jesus in our own image and we are wrong about him, it should cut us to the heart. Even today, both non-believers and believers sometimes have misguided understandings of who Jesus is. Now, we don't have time today to go into all of them. But in similar fashion to the ancient times, some people think he was a great teacher or a great moral influence or... What a many paths to God, to enlightenment, or good luck charm. Some people treat him like AAA on the car roadside assistance service, where when you break down or you need some help, that's who you call. He's part of a good life, like you add him on to the rest of your life and everything will be all right. And what Scripture reminds us again and again is, that is unacceptable when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. Amen? I read this week um, a transcript of an interview that Bono, this is one of those weird things, because my generation understands who Bono's is, but I know the generation above me may not and below me may not. How many of you know who Bono is? Good, half of us, that's awesome. All right, Uh, Bono's lead singer of a group named U2. Bono is a believer, has professed that to be a believer, and sometimes that perplexes the outside world because 
Um, for a long time, he was considered to be part uh, the lead singer of the greatest rock and roll group that was around. And he was in an interview on NPR, and they asked him about his belief in Jesus. And he begins to make a comparison that was eerily similar, and I think based upon C.S. Lewis's understanding of Jesus. And he says, if you talk about the cultural understanding of Jesus, you get all this stuff about a good moral teacher, or a great man, or someone that was awesome, or was someone that spoke the truth. And yet he said the reality comes that when you really dig down into who Jesus said he was, that you can't say he was a good man if you don't also believe he was God. Because only, and his words were, a lunatic on the level of Charles Manson could be deluded enough to say the things Jesus said if it's not true. He said, what I have a hard time believing is how a deluded, crazy man could impact half of the world's population for 2,000 years in an unbelievable way. C.S. Lewis famously said it, that when you look at the claims of Jesus, you have to come to the point where you say he is one of three things. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord Almighty. He can't be a great teacher and claim to be God. He either has to be deluded or he has to be outright lying. And when you look at the evidence of his life, it's hard to conclude that he's either one of those two things. And so you come to the conclusion that he is Lord. So these people realized they were wrong about Jesus. Now let me just say, just because you have accepted Christ as your Savior and have been saved by Him, which is the case for most people in this room, just because that's the case in your life does not mean you still are following and going after and have the right concept of Jesus. It's easy for us to put onto Him what we think is right. In fact, in recent polls and recent studies, what they have discovered is they ask people their personal views of politics and society and cultural issues, and then they ask them what Jesus thinks of all of those same issues, and it almost lines up exactly what we think and what Jesus thinks. Now, some people will go, that's awesome, right? We're doing what Jesus wants. What they've concluded is most people create Jesus to think of him as the one that agrees with them on every issue. And if Jesus agrees with you on every single issue you have, there's probably a problem there, and it's probably not him. And we make Jesus into this image, and Peter comes to them and basically says, you don't have control over who he is. You thought you did away with him, but God validated him. As both Lord and Messiah. And that means if they're wrong about Jesus, they're wrong about life in general. And Peter very explicitly puts before them that they have a choice in life. Either you are with Jesus or you're not. You're either submitted to him as Lord and Messiah in your life or you're not. Someone has compared it to being like the TSA. That once you go through security, you're on one side of the line. And when you're not yet, you're on the other side. And there's no real in-between. You're either cleared or not. And you're not cleared until you are. The first thing they realized is they were wrong about Jesus. The second thing they realized is they were responsible for what happened to him. 
Now, I want to be very careful here because this verse has been used multiple times in multiple ways, verses 22 and 36 of this chapter, in anti-Semitic ways. And it is not directly blaming all Jews for the death of Jesus. In fact, it is broader than that. When Peter says that you killed him, he is speaking metaphorically of the universal you. Broader than the southern y'all, the universal you. All of us are responsible for the death of Jesus. Even Peter, who denied Jesus on the night he was arrested before being crucified, was a part of that. They realized that not only is Jesus different and better and higher than they imagined, that they were more guilty than they could have thought. And so these people hear the word of God. And what happens in the midst of God moving in the life of a church, what happens in the midst of God moving in our lives individually is, is that when God starts to use us as arrows for his kingdom, the first thing that has to happen is that people have to get right with him. People in the church, people as individuals have to get right with God. And for those of us that are unbelievers or those of you that are unbelievers in this room, if you're an unbeliever, that means that you come to a place where you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're saved from your sins once and for all and enter into the kingdom of heaven where God is going to watch over you forever and ever and ever. And the moment that that happens, you are saved. And so for people there, like the 3,000 here, what do we do, Peter? And Peter says, then you believe and baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. You come and admit your sin. You come and declare that you are without hope, without Jesus. And you trust him as Savior and as Lord. And as you do that, your life is changed. And for those in the room that are unbelievers, that have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the first step in your spiritual journey is to take that step of faith and trust Christ as Lord. But for most of us in this room, what it means to get right with God is to examine our lives. Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Know all the things about me. Know the things that I'm anxious about, things that I'm worried about. Know the things that I am doing wrong. And Lord, show them to me. Show me my ways. Show me what's there and then lead me in the way everlasting. And the idea is for those of us that are believers in this room, if we want our church to move forward, to do what God has called us to do, if we want to be salt and light in this community, if we want to see people saved for the glory of God and the spread of his kingdom, if we want to see our culture change, the first step in any of that happening is that the people of God must come to a place where we get right with God. Where we admit those areas of our lives that we have allowed the culture to infiltrate and to change our thoughts. We admit those areas of our lives where sin has crept in, familiar or unfamiliar things that we did in the past that have crept back in are new sins and new ways. And we admit those before God and we bring them to him and we say, God, just like they did to Peter, what must we do? One of the things that has been lost in the modern American church culture is strong calls to repentance and confession. 
And yet scripture again and again and again and again and again says, get right with God, confess your sins before the Lord. Now, the the difficult thing for us is we're real good at thinking about what other people might need to confess. And scripture never says, confess your neighbor's sins to them or to anyone else. It is to come into a place where you are thinking through and asking God to show you what's there. When they ask Peter, what should we do? Peter's first word is repent. That word seems to find itself in almost every sermon we preach because almost every sermon that I preach has somewhere in it where God calls us to repent to look at our own lives, to admit those things. Repentance is two parts. It's confession. Confession at its most basic level means to agree with, to agree with God that this is not right, that this thought, that this action, that this attitude, that it is not right. This relationship, this business venture, this extracurricular thing I'm doing, this understanding is not right. And God, I agree with you that it's not right. That's the first step. It's coming to that place where we say to the Lord, I was wrong. I have sinned. And then the second part of that is an action step. And it means to turn around or to change direction. And so true repentance, he says to them, is to come and admit what you have done. Admit that you're responsible because God placed Jesus on the cross for our sins. And then come to a place where you are repenting and turning in a new direction, living a new life. And what happens in the verses following that is amazing. So it tells us that 3,000 come. And here's what I can tell you. We've talked about this before as a church. Can you imagine if we had 3,000 new believers dumped into our church in a day? It would be praise be to God. What in the world do we do? Right? You're looking at me like, I don't know. For me, it would be praise be to God. What in the world do we do? And we have an answer for what characterized their life when a Spirit of God moved. And so what does it look like on a daily basis when the Spirit of God moves in a mighty way? When you're being used by God as the tip of the arrow in His hands? There are four things that are found in verse 42 that describe exactly what they were passionately devoted to. In fact, that's what the word devoted is right there in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things that if you're truly, passionately following the Lord spirit-infused following four things that will be part of your life without having to be asked, without having to be told, without having to have sermons preached about it, without really an accountability happening in your life. These are four things that are going to happen in your life. And the first one is you will passionately devoted to feasting on God's truth. It says right there, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we have this understanding because there was nowhere in Jerusalem where they could meet every day 
3,100 strong and have a meal together. They didn't have catering service for 3,000 in Jerusalem. So most people think, most scholars think that what happened is that they were eating in houses. They were gathering in houses and eating there. And so as they're there, the apostles apparently were sending out letters or they had people that would come from the house and be instructed by the apostles and the apostles would go out. But they were diving into the apostles' teaching. So let me ask you this question. What was the apostles' teaching? What were they teaching? That's good. Somebody else. What were they teaching? What do you think they were teaching? What Jesus told them, right? Jesus just spent three and a half years teaching them parables, truths, Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. He saw the miracles. They tell him the stories. The apostles are teaching what Jesus taught them and trained them to teach. And so that was the word they have. What do we call those things today? We call them the Gospels. They were teaching the content that we find in the Gospels. And then what we have on the out of, in the New Testament past that is the apostles' teachings of the Gospel in the letters that they wrote to the churches where they served. The importance of this for our generation is this. For the world in which we live in, they were looking for absolute truth from outside themselves, not from within. And they allowed themselves to be transformed into what the outside source of Scripture taught them. You see, Christianity says the fundamental problem for us is us. Not something else. Romans 12 tells us that we're not to conform to this world any Lord, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The idea there is that we are to let the word of God seep deep into our minds and into our spirits and into our souls and change us from the inside out because our problem is internal, not external. It's an article in the New York Times a few years ago that talked about a therapist who said he made a change in the way that he did therapy. He said people weren't coming to therapy anymore. And he said he realized why is because he kept asking them on the front end, I'm here to help you figure out what you need to change. And he said more and more I heard from people there was nothing they needed to change, but that so-and-so needed to change and their circumstances needed to change and everything in their lives outside of them needed to change, but that they were fine. We live in a world that tells us that everything out there is the problem, and yet Scripture reminds us that it's internal and that God's Word is what changes us. They were passionate about feasting on the truth of God. Second thing it says in here, they were dedicated not only to the apostles' teaching but to the fellowship. What does that mean? That means the group of people, the koinonia, the group of people that were together and fellowshipping together. As I mentioned, there was probably no place where 3,000 of them could meet at once every day. And so they split into home groups, what we would call today Sunday school classes or life groups. And they split into the groups. And in those groups is where they took care of one another. And as they took care of one another, they took care of the church at large. Those groups were diverse. 
They had people from all over the place. We're told that when the 3,000 came, and now some of them would have gone back to their homes, and so they may not all have been around Jerusalem there, but several of them would have been. They would be from different places, and some of them probably changed their plans to make sure they were where they needed to be once God saved them right there in Jerusalem. And so you have these groups meeting on a regular basis. They're taking care of whatever needs they have. They're there as emotional support, physical support, financial support. They're helping each other with their businesses as other people are ostracizing them because they are following the way. They are helping them to get by day by day by day. And they have devoted themselves to one another in love for the good of the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, and for the health of the group. I don't know how big the house groups would have been, but probably about the same size as our life groups, our Sunday school groups. It's a place that I want to tell you that if you're not involved in a Life Group Sunday School Bible Study on Sunday mornings. They are a vital part of what Christ wants to do in your life. Andy Stanley is famous for saying that life change happens more in circles than in rows. As you're able to sit around and talk about what God is doing and the questions that you have. This is a pretty one-ended conversation. Many days, it's a completely one-ended conversation. But in Groups, you can have conversation and talk and lay out what God is doing in your life and asking those questions and admitting your faults and asking for prayers. If you're not a part of that, I'd love to have a conversation with you about where you may fit or starting something new to find out a place to fit. They're serving one another. They're passionately devoted to feasting on God's truth, of serving one another. Thirdly, they were passionately devoted to seeking the presence of God. Now, you may not get that right there to the breaking of bread. That sounds almost like they were having dinner together, but that is a formalized term in the New Testament that means they shared the Lord's Supper together. And for us, sharing the Lord's Supper like we did last Sunday is a significant experience. Every time I'm able to lead you in that, I'm reminded of the responsibility and the significance of that moment. We should never forget that. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul corrects any kind of flippancy which which we do the Lord's Supper that is a serious occasion that we enter into. But can you imagine for the apostles of Jesus Christ what it was like leading the Lord's Supper among other people as every time they led it, they were taken back to the upper room in that moment when Jesus is giving his final instructions. And in that moment, they're communing with the memory of And the promises of Jesus in that moment and seeking the presence of God to be in their lives a blessing on who they are. And so these people of God that have seen salvation come have been molded by the Holy Spirit into this early group of believers. Devote themselves to feasting on God's word to the fellowship and to one another and to seeking the presence of God, of doing what God has said, to welcome him in, to remember what Christ has done for him and our sacrifice for us. And then the last one is the one that gets mentioned more often than any other in the rest of the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If you want to know if God's moving in your life, just check where your prayer life is. And this is not a guilt moment because the reality is that most of us in this room, if I were to ask, how's your prayer life going? Most of us would 
be either ashamed to talk about it or would admit it could be better. But part of what happens when God begins to move in your life and in your church and in your surroundings is that you are so desperate to see that continue and you are so thankful for what God is doing that you spend time in prayer. Now there are two things that characterize the prayers of the people in the book of Acts and we're going to finish with this because I think it's important. First of all, the prayers by the people of God in the books of Acts were consistent. Somebody was in jail. What did they do? They prayed. Somebody was under attack. What did they do? They prayed. There was a situation they couldn't understand. What did they do? They prayed. Every step along the way, they pray. Consistently, they pray. And there's a second word that is used about their prayers again and again and again. And they even sometimes ask for this to be part of what their life would be when they pray. Paul specifically asked this word multiple times, and that is, pray when you pray that I would be bold. And the people of God in Scripture, they pray in the book of Acts consistently, but they pray boldly. They pray for God to do big things. They pray for God to do mighty things. They pray for God to do above and beyond what we can ask or imagine. And then they trust him with the results. They ask God for opportunity to go to the ends of the earth. They ask God to do something in a city so big that people would be recognizing the movement of God within. And God delivered time and time and time again. And the question that I have oftentimes when people say, why does God God not move today like he does in the New Testament or in times that we've heard in the past? The simple answer to that is because God's people are not praying for God to move like they did in those days. Remember a couple of weeks ago we said that in his sovereignty, God has decided to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. That doesn't mean he can't step outside of that and do whatever he wants to do. But in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his greatness, he has decided to limit his activity to the prayers of his people. And here's the question that I have asked before, but I'll ask again. It's been a while, and it's always good to come back. It always challenges me. If God were to answer every one of your prayers for the last two weeks, what would change eternally? I mean, I know somebody might get better from a physical illness or might be delivered from emotional distress or even an addiction. But how many people would be saved? How much would God's kingdom advance? And where would we see the eternal difference if God answered every one of your prayers over the last two weeks? Now, maybe you're here and you've got big prayers that are happening. But what I hear and what I sense is that most of us contain our prayers to reasonable request. Because we're afraid of walking out there in faith and trusting God with big stuff. And the people of God in the book of Acts prayed boldly. And God delivered in big ways. And so you have to come to one of two conclusions. Either... God is not the same today as he was then, and I am not going to say that because Scripture says he is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Or you have to say that God's people are not as bold as we once were in praying. What bold prayers are you praying for this church that matter eternally? What bold prayers are you praying at your work, in your life, for your kids? Yes, it'd be awesome if they got an A on that test on Friday. That'd be great. What are you praying for for them to make eternal difference? For your grandkids, for your parents. People of God here were committed to praying. And when you follow it through the rest of the book of Acts, it was big time prayers, miraculous deliverance from prison. My favorite stories in the whole book is Paul gets delivered and shows up and knocks on the door and they don't stop for a moment because they're praying for him to be released. They open the door and they're like, it's a ghost, what happened? Like they prayed for it and God delivered while they were praying for it and they don't believe it. If I looked at your life, better question, as God looks at your life, what areas do you have that you need to get right with God for? Now just to be real honest, that's not the most technologically theological question, but it's a good Tennessee question. What do you need to get right with God about? And then the second thing, is your life characterized by dedication to God's Word, to the people of God, and making sure you are serving them, to seeking the presence of God, and to boldly praying for God to move? And if not... What needs to change? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you give us chance after chance, time after time, when we can focus our attention on you. And I pray that you would clear out the distractions from this place and that we would hear from you directly about what in our lives we need to get rid of, that we need to repent of, that we need to change, of the things in our lives that have been slow or distant the Lord that we need to return to I pray Lord that you would give us just an understanding of what that means for us individually in this place today and we pray as a church Lord we pray for bold vision I pray that we would pray boldly for you to move here among us and in our community and in our area And Lord, give us the ability just to trust you in the midst of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.